0: Thank you for listening to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief, and the self to technobiophilia, leadership, and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahigh.com forward slash the podcast or tweet to me at natalinahigh. I hope you enjoy the show. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Sophia Rocklin. She's an author, speaker, and non profit organiser from New York City, and through engaged botany and ecology, she bridges the worlds of indigenous ecological knowledge and Western science. She holds a BA in Anthropology and Religious Studies from the New School and an MSc in Ecological Economics from the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. She's a program coordinator at the Chaikuni Institute and currently directs the Sustainable Ayahuasca Cultivation Program at the Temple of the Way of Light, a traditional plant medicine retreat center in the Peruvian Amazon. She is a co-author of When Plants Dream, Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance, and it's on the global spread of ayahuasca. She has worked with several psychedelic harm reduction programs such as Cosmicare and is a member of the Ayahuasca Community Committee for the Shakruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. It was a really interesting interview for me, so I really hope that you enjoy this one. Sophia, thank you so much for joining me today in conversation. I'm delighted to be talking with you.
1: Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: The first question is a bit of a big one, and it is, where do you think we're headed as a species?
1: Oh, okay, great. Perfect. Deep dive, deep plunge. Nine o'clock in the morning in New York City. I'm ready for it. <laughs> um, well, where are we headed? Assuming that time is linear, or our perspective of it is, <laughs> um, I think that we are in a phase of um growing up kind of like you know that terrible moment when we realize we're about to get kicked out of the house and we are not able to just hang out in our parents' house anymore and we now need to be responsible and grow up and I think that you know mm-hmm. we have a choice really when we will uh leave the house or whether we will be kicked out of the house um and You know, what we have along the way is all of these education through thousands of years of working in altered states of consciousness, hundreds of years of developing technologies and tools. And now we're actually going to go from playing with these things and writing about these things in our little schoolgirl notebooks to actually applying them, you know, and really um, setting out to the great task of healing our world, which is... Going to be nothing short of miraculous, but um, a miracle is kind of our great initiation. And we can expect Mm. nothing less of ourselves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So for that to happen, and this is something that keeps popping up in terms of, depending on which side you sit at the divide, more towards a side of courage and hope and the belief in a possibility for a step change in how we are as a species, how we organize ourselves and interact with the living world of which you're a part there's that on the one side the hope and the courage and yes a vision is possible and then on the other side um I've met quite a few people who are a lot more resigned to the impossibility or their perceived impossibility of the task and I wonder Mm -hmm. what you think is necessary for this step change this miracle as you nicely encapsulate it to take place at like how many of us mm-hmm. and which among us in terms of level of power so I'm thinking here like on a meta level you've got the political structures economic structures etc and then people at grassroots who are really galvanizing themselves towards change how many people across these different stratas of society need to be able to make a change for the rest to benefit from that like because I don't think everyone's going to to make the choices or are able to make the choices mm-hmm. necessary for the change that needs to come. I'm kind of winding my way here with words, but I'm hoping you're getting my, my meaning.
1: I, I, I guess I catch your drift. It's, um, I mean, again, most of my work and my thinking is shaped from the work that I do with Indigenous communities in the forest. And there's a reason <laughs> why I hang out with them, I think, because um, I've seen the, I've physic, physically, you know, really felt the the scale of um, environmental devastation and degradation, and there's there's something that happens when you walk into a, a monoculture palm oil forest, mm. an oil palm tree forest, <clears throat> and it's probably one of the, the eeriest things you can possibly imagine. It's green, but there's nothing alive. You know, it's all of these trees are arranged in some sort of a phantasmagoric <laughs> military form. Uh, so you know i felt that and i i remember for years i actually grieved really what that what is happening there from the oil spills and from the extraction. And, and for, for, I mean, for myself, you know, I've only experienced alienation and abstraction from my environment in the form of depression and anxiety mm. and even mild forms of eating disorders and post-traumatic. I mean, most of us, you know, in, in the West, I feel at the risk of making a generalization. It's these, these illnesses exist on kind of epidemic proportions. Mm. And so the healers that I work with in the Amazon, mostly the Shipibo people, um, they're a tribe of 35,000 people. Mm. They recognize all of these illnesses as manifestations of, um, you know, something, a, a larger symptom of being separated from Earth. Um, and these are just different faces or different symptoms of that issue. So, you know, having said that, I'm also very privileged to be able to see uh, kind of a bizarre <laughs> Thing happening where I where I am able to interact with people from many walks of life right many different strata as you say working in the spheres of technology um, entrepreneurs people you know owning publicly traded bus- I mean big businesses who have found themselves to also similarly be struggling with these uh, issues um, just mm-hmm. existential ennui anguish whatever um, and coming down to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca in hopes of um, recalibrating, you know, what it is to be human and what their job is and what their role is. So I, I'm, I'm of the belief, I'm of the, of the optimistic belief <laughs> that, you know, the, the critical mass will have some sort of an impact um, and I think that you know, if people who are in positions of power and in business really do take their personal healing seriously, not as some sort of a navel-gazing, uh, you know, <laughs> spiritual woo woo adventure, but actually as saying, you know, we transformation must come from within. I'm not a, I, how am I supposed to impose an ecological outlook on people out there if I can't have it within myself, you know? <laughs> um, and and that's that's my hope, and that's what I do, you know, because I think that there's there's nothing else to do and i think that grief and despair have their place and mourning has their place but the communities that i work with have suffered you know far longer and far more acute cases of oppression and and just despair than we in the west certainly have so and and they're happy you know they laugh and they take care of each other and 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 it's sometimes and there's a community called Ashanika in, in brazil and they punctuate their expressions of grief with so alegria to happiness you know
0: mm.
1: because it, it must be happiness it, yeah it's just it's like a political mandate to be happy
0: <laughs> it's really um it's quite a stark contrast that i'm i'm Imagining as you're speaking this, because it's true, like in the West, I find it's very easy for us, I'm speaking just from personal experience, to distract ourselves Mm -hmm. and to enjoy comfort. Like it's so easy to ignore uncomfortable feelings, feelings of despair, feelings of grief, when there's so much with which we can just numb. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder, like that in contrast with people who have experienced firsthand their whole lives, be absolutely devastated through the encroachment of their homes through deforestation etc what is it do you think that exists within the fabric of these cultures the people that you work with that allows them to find this path to happiness to live with this intention or this um i don't know how easy it is to access this sense of happiness but this this closeness to it in a way that we've kind of numbed ourselves what is it about a population who've experienced so much grief and despair that still allows them to reach out for the joy and Mm -hmm. for the beauty and what can yeah. we learn from that
1: always at the risk of romanticizing and simplifying <laughs> i would say <laughs> i would say their connection to the land i would yeah mm-hmm. i would say it's really when people and and it's 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 notable actually working with communities who have been displaced or dispossessed from their territories and people who still have memory of You know, the tree where their grandmother was hit in the head by a coconut or where the river where their children played. You know, there's a sense of there's a sense of unity and connection to place. And and I can't help but feel that, um, you know, as long as that connection and even if it extends maybe not from that specific ancestral territory, but to the land, you know, similar flora and fauna. Um, and land that that people maintain a sense of their sanity because again I mean their sense of their cosmovision right everything from their conception of time everything from their articulation of language um, how they understand the the body to work all of these things are pinched upon their place and you know this long sort of story woven through of oral history that relates back to creation and where creation began and for all of these people you know it's funny there's like a there's a trope throughout the amazon basin i guess anthropologists might notice it more but in people's native tongues um their their name like how they name themselves is usually like god's people or our people like they are the chosen ones you know so everybody feels like they're the chosen one in their given land and that creates a sense of place and meaning you know and and all, and their only meaning in life is really to just dwell and steward that land whereas you know just speaking for myself like the the path of finding meaning in this culture holy smokes there is like we are helpless you know cuz it mm. we've 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 made everything so complex and so abstract and it's just like having being a gardener as a profession is not really <laughs> uh you know so too celebrated but i i would i i urge everyone to re- recalibrate that and kind of celebrate the gardener once more
0: as you're speaking i was having images in my mind i well so we we both have spent time in gracia and in barcelona and one of the things that i like is looking out and seeing people milling around but what i've noticed more and more recently is the um, the lack of variety in life forms. That sounds so sci-fi, but things like,
1: you know, oh, if I look out for birds,
0: <laughs> yeah. if I look out for birds, it's almost all pigeons. And if I look out for four-legged creatures, it's almost all dogs. And Lots of dogs. <laughs> lots of dogs. But even in comparison to when I was living in London, I had this tiny little handkerchief size space of a garden and there would be squirrels and there would be finches and there would be sparrows and occasional foxes um, and there'd be cats and like that's a little bit more diverse but it makes me it makes me think of you know if you're in a if you're in a city if you're a city dweller and you're in a space in which what you experience is really a pared down version of the variety of life then of course we're going to have a pared down sense of the complexity of the richness I kind of want to say of, of what we belong to and I think that's one of the things that For anyone who spent time outside of the city and, you know, if you have the fortune of experiencing the jungle, um, you really realise just how varied and rich and extraordinary this is. And I think we've lost that sense of wonder. Um, What what do you think?
1: It's quite interesting. Yeah, a friend of mine once phrased it like something to the effect of we've we've. Unconscious, unconsciously migrated to human ghettos you know like mm. these cities really are just concrete human habitats and um i can't help but you know absolutely feel that way but i will say you know in gracia and in barcelona in general something that's truly a, a dying um how do i say this a dying geometry <laughs> or a form is <laughs> is is the public plaza you know mm. Um, growing up, being in Barcelona for me and just spending time there, having that place, those public plaza spaces, really, which is really just sort of, you could you could even extend it on to just say, you know, it's like an extension of, of um, a lot that all the kids play in. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I, you see this in indigenous, like, hamlets as well. You know, there's always one place that, from all angles, everybody can migrate <laughs> towards, this, like, kind of central congregation place. Um, and, for, I mean, for me, growing up, living in Barcelona briefly was... Um, was a was a revelation you know seeing that there were places for these kind of like temporary autonomous zones almost and i mean you even see like you know the punks in gracia will throw molotov cocktails into starbucks developments there i remember this happened when i was there and they're like vehemently opposed to Mm. the disney vacation of these spaces so Mm. um yeah but i mean absolutely it's 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 more, I would say Barcelona is uniquely like colorful and special and human and diverse as far as cities go. Hmm. Um, but I'm in New York City now, so my my circuit these days has been New York to the Amazon, New York to the Amazon, um, and it is a different kind of quiet here. You know, it's a quiet that makes you go a little bit crazy. Whereas when I'm, you know. Blessed to be in the Amazon. It's a it's a silence within. You know, there's no radio, there's no texting, none of that stuff. I barely have internet connection when I'm there. Um, but there's a sort of the orchestra of the forest mm-hmm. prevails and the quiet of nature itself. So it's it's a it's an amazing thing to just be. You know, med- to have a meditation practice actually and compare my meditations here in my quiet New York apartment. You know, where I hear the radiator tinging against the wall mm-hmm. and. Um, and and the forest and that whole orchestra of beings that are kind of accompanying me in my in my stillness mm. that's such a vivid way to describe it it's i i really yeah and i really i i mean you know without sending a troop of um carbon emitting planes into the amazon because that's also a, a wonderful sort of contradiction mm. that i live with flying over there all the time <laughs> is um there's something about being in the Amazon, you know, ecologically and existentially speaking, it's the most biodiverse place on earth. You know, in one hectare of land, it, which is, I guess, 2.5 acres for American listeners, <laughs> we have more plant and animal species than in all of the North American continent combined, which is far more biodiverse than Europe today. So mm-hmm. it's just this like existential orgasm. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> fusion of life and to just be there you know it's funny I've even I I think I've had I've had healers make jokes you know that all of the animals are a bit more quiet when a new batch of gringos come off and you see them we're all like kind of pale and lanky and like uncomfortable but within two or three weeks of spending time there and people really unwind and something different happens they're no mm-hmm. longer so annoyed by the mosquitoes they're not telling the birds to shut up outside <laughs> like it really is a different uh, frequency that happens and I do believe that the animals actually begin to come closer and they start to you know check things out they want to know what's mm-hmm. going on with you but at first we're quite scary when we're fresh off the boat we're like <laughs> we're these weird curmudgeon Uh, cold kind of creatures that come
0: from cities Mm. so I want to talk a little bit about the work of your your different backgrounds so you're intersecting areas of botany and ecology indigenous knowledge and western science and um, I'm curious to ask what are some of the most surprising insights that you've encountered in in your work in those different fields
1: Oh, that's great. So I mean, I've increasingly been working through applied ecology and botany, which is basically, you know, having basic knowledge of these fields, um, going and, and trying to express them with indigenous communities that I work with, and then saying, oh, yeah, that's so and so, you know, kind of drawing parallels and third understanding. So for example, there's um. There's a plant that we work with a lot in the Amazon, tobacco. You may have heard of it. <laughs> um, and you know, t- tobacco in the 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 variety of tobacco that we that we smoke in the north is actually called Nicotiana uh, tabacum, mm-hmm. and the one that's used in South America is Nicotiana rustica. So it's actually much it has a much greater it's a higher nicotine uh, alkaloid concentration. Mm-hmm. So if you smoke it, you will kind of get knocked onto your bum. <laughs> um, but, you know, we see throughout the Americas, actually, tobacco has been used very centrally in, in prayer. Um, and, it, you know, like water quenches thirst or like food nourishes, tobacco has been used as, as, a, as a tool of prayer. It really did at some point figure that prominently into our everyday use. Um, and so, you know, when I work with communities in the forest, there are a lot of, a lot of the times we have Westerners come and they say, why is everyone smoking? It's so bad for you. You know, and all the elders are smoking like chimneys, (laughs) um, and tobacco, you know, if I ask them, why are you, why are you smoking? Mapacho, we'll call it. They'll often say Mapacho is used to keep spirits away. It's used to keep negative energies at bay. (laughs) So they'll, they'll plant tobacco in like a perimeter around their households, um, and if you approach it from an ethnobotanist or a botanist's perspective, you see that tobacco is actually an insecticide it 's a pesticide, so it keeps mm. insects away um, so you know just bridging that definition between um, a fly and a fairy right or these kind of little <laughs> these these little understandings kind of have a dual meaning mm. actually, and you see that you know maybe we don't see that it keeps the bad spirits away, but we see that it keeps the bad insects away and Mm. it it, it has that effect generally. So, I mean, that's, that's what I've loved looking at, you know, and trying to articulate and translate is that a lot of these indigenous articulations of how plants work and how people work with plants actually have some sort of a scientific significance. And that's how we, you know, people who aren't trained in an animistic kind of romanticist worldview um, can be um, acquainted with plants and can, and can develop our own understandings with plants. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I have much more, right? <laughs> there's one other thing I would love to share, which is um, about this practice called the, the diet, the dieta. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, and dietas, it's, it means just a diet in Spanish, but um, the, the people will call it a sama a sama is a practice that's observed pretty much throughout the Amazon basin, which by different indigenous communities um, and it's a it's a sort of a an ascetic act of abstention and isolation for the purposes of you know developing personal um, strength for For example, becoming a better hunter or a better lover or kind of imagine them like expansion packs, like you will do a certain diet to get a certain new personality trait, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think of it like a software add on, actually. (laughs) And so you go into the forest and you spend time in isolation there and you will work with a certain plant. Um, And these plants are called master plants or teacher plants. So it's not just any grass, but it's really, usually they're plants with mild psychoactivity, but generally they're just kind of very impressive looking on the outside. Um, And so through fasting really, so no oil, no salt, no sugar, no sex, no music, nothing pleasurable whatsoever. You are basically Mm -hmm. not even drinking water. Um, for 14 days for a month and even the, the great masters used to do it for over a year actually Oof. they would spend time alone in the forest doing this kind of wasting away um, and taking only these small quantities of plants and this is actually what I've come to understand as an empirical method of scientific investigation, whereby you are sort of creating a container in your body. Think of it like a, like a laboratory. You know, you're emptying everything out. You're saying, well, if I have this, I have that psychological effect. If I have this, I have this physiological effect. Um, it's, you, you, you begin to slowly discover what these personalities or the properties, the chemical properties are of the plants. So basically, I mean, people didn't just brazenly start munching on whatever mm. bushes they found in the forest. I believe that this is how they learned, you know, what plants work and what other. And from that learning, they learned how the other plants worked, if that makes sense. Mm. So for me, I mean, just to just to zoom out and to put that knowledge into context, it points to it. It's an entirely different epistemological method of deriving knowledge. So in our culture, we're reading, we're writing, we're getting on stage, everything is outwards. But yeah. what we see here is actually a method of learning whereby you are going as inwards as possible and actually deriving extremely useful and fundamental information about about the elements.
0: Such an interesting way to put it as well. I think often when we think about other indigenous practices, That um, that use these sorts of experiences and rituals to discover or unlock knowledge. Um, It's very easy to to find it quite alien, and so sort of I like the idea of that being um, creating a laboratory within oneself. You recently wrote a book with Daniel Pinchbeck called "When Plants Dream: Ayahuasca, Amazonian Shamanism, and the Global Psychedelic Renaissance." Um, There's many questions I want to ask you about this, but one of the first ones that comes to mind is around this renewed excitement and interest in both public and scientific, in psychedelic experiences, research, um, application. And one of the things that personally I keep coming up against is the fact that, you know, we can find indigenous psychoactive plants in most parts of the world. So, for instance, in the UK, there's an abundance of a particular kind of magic mushroom. I think it's psilocybe. Kinescence that you can forage in fields and it's, it's really plentiful if you know where to look from October to February you can get your hands on it and yet time and again um, I encounter people who will um, get access to and fly over specific ayahuasca brews and try and recreate these sorts of ceremonies, so the rituals surrounding it, that are not indigenous to the land where it's being flown to. And personally, I find that incoherent. And there's something about it that troubles me. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. At the same time, realising that, you know, if Mm -hmm, we want access mm -hmm. to these things and we don't want to fly to create a footprint, this is a method from which to do it. So it's a complex issue. But I guess what I'm asking is, why is it you think that so many of us in Western cultures have... Mm, gravitated towards and latched onto ayahuasca in particular or iboga or peyote these more exotic forms of accessing self-knowledge what what is it about it that's so seductive
1: yeah it's a great question um you know i i i I uh, tend to be on your side when it comes to having mixed feelings about doing ceremonies with you know, exotic mm. plants abroad and seeking salvation <laughs> and some sort of a potion from the other side of the world. It's true, you know? It is, there's something quite absurd about it. But um, when I, I, I look at it from the, from the place of understanding our greater cultural longing to experience catharsis, mm and um initiation and these are things that we don't we have very very conveniently eliminated from our experience yeah. in sort of in the global north let's say you know so i mean even death you know it's like hidden we don't think about it mm. um but we've lost all of our rituals we've lost all of our coming of age we've lost all of these sort of ordeals that kind of put us that mark our place from one Phase to another phase. And as a result, I find that we kind of have this slow drip of existence that lacks any sort of uh, deeper kind of cultural meaning mm. or um, celebrations, really, you know, birthdays, we just go get, you know, fucked up and forget about it, right? But that, that really act of joining together, um, kind of, it's kind of like taking a head count of your community, knowing who's there for you. Um, I think that that's a very... Human thing. And so these plants that you mentioned, you know, peyote, iboga, ayahuasca, sometimes people call them ordeal medicines um, and, or entheogens also. So entheogen just roughly translates to divi- de- generating the divine from within, entheogen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know through these ordeals, it's there's nothing pleasant about ayahuasca or iboga or peyote specifically. They they make you feel nauseous and uncomfortable. Uh, most likely, you will wonder why the hell you are there. You know why do you did that? Why you did that to yourself? Um, but I I have an, I have an elder who put it best. You know and he said that he's a Native American elder and he said. Your medicine, white people medicine, makes you feel good and then makes you feel like hell. Our medicine makes you feel like hell and then makes you feel good,
0: <laughs> yeah. definitely rather the latter
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it kind of gets right to it so and it's true, you know, I think that there is something there is something that makes us fundamentally remember holy 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 We're we're humans, and this is the experience and just to and just to shake us out of this. Uh, complacency or this monotony of everyday life that we've of of the safety of the sort of the simplicity and the ease that we've created mm-hmm. buffered by the way through the pursuit of technology and design and all of this stuff everything we do is to you know to the tool in and of itself very fundamentally is something that will uh, which will take away a level of engagement with your environment you know mm-hmm. it's a lever it's a fulcrum it's something that just makes it makes a step easier but in the development of all of these tools you know some of them for the better but i think i mean i'm, I'm quite of like a luddite in some senses you know <laughs> i think that we've really really lost what it means to touch the earth and to be human and so for example, now we see with the mainstreaming of psychedelics, people will suggest, you know, do you microdose ayahuasca? What if we could make ayahuasca without the vomit, you know? Mm. And to me, that entirely misses... I don't know if there is a point, but if there was a point, I would say that we're missing it, you know, because it is through that difficulty and that pain and the purge and the discomfort and all of these things that we actually find revelation and we earn a sense of change. Um, And you know, our, and what we've been doing with psychopharmaceuticals and through technology and all this stuff is just making things easier, you know, just taking a pill and, um, and kind of willing it away. And to an extent it does, but fundamentally, you know, we're, we're humans are meaning making machines. We tell each, we tell ourselves stories. And as long as our story doesn't change, and the story that we tell ourselves about our lives doesn't change we can't I don't think that we can g- genuinely transform and so what these medicines help us do is revisit our past actually there's a there's a huge aspect of bio- biographical memory recall which is which is significant with the use of three of these plants that you mentioned. Um, and it really is about refiling the cabinets and saying, "Oh now i'm not you know I'm ready to let that story go. I'm ready to let that trauma go I'm ready to let whatever go um and that's really how I sense the 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 transformation begins. I realize I was like generalizing technologies here <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm in a bit of a mood today, it's but okay. I missed the forest today, but um <laughs> But, but, you know, you get you get what I'm saying. I'm even thinking of a technology as like a shovel, you know, like a tool that just kind of, like, we're not digging with our hands anymore. There's like this metal tip and you're just, it's a different gesture and it's a different experience and good for some things. But I think maybe we should, you know, throw the spade aside sometimes and just eat some dirt.
0: <laughs> well, I think also there is this sense of... Um... <laughs> Of wanting to avoid discomfort at all costs, and I think one of the things that I notice with the ways in which we use technology is that although it can move us out of a sense of anxiety or stress in the short term, so say for instance you're you're feeling upset about something, so you whip out your phone and you go on social media, you get your nice little dopamine hit, and for the time being you're distracted. So there's that sense of uh, temporary relief, let's say, but it adds to this this kind of ambient sense of restlessness which I think obscures something deeper which is this need like you've mentioned to feel a sense of belonging to feel a sense of meaning of connectedness with a wider experience of life um, which I think is inhibited when you're when you're separated from the seasons, let's say. Well, I'm not saying that we should all go and live in tents because I really would not enjoy that apart from for certain seasons in the year, <laughs> but to have more of a permeability between the environments that we've created for ourselves and the environment from which we arise. And so one of the things I want to explore with you is, um, I'm kind of going to take us down a slightly different track here, is that when people open themselves up for... Um, threshold experiences, initiatory experiences, where we're potentially confronting something very traumatic or um, difficult, Um, one of the things that is really important, of course, is to be able to process the stuff that comes up so that we're not just sitting Mm -hmm. with kind of like an open wound, allowing anything to come in and not actually working with the healing process itself. So I wonder, with your work, because you work on this particularly, which I think is fascinating, um, you work on the harm reduction aspect of psychedelic experience can you tell us a little bit about about why you came to engage in that work and why it's so necessary Mm.
1: yeah so I mean my work with psychedelic harm reduction uh, has taken sort of various forms I guess I started working in with um with boom festival actually so boom is a I don't know if you know of boom it's a a (laughs) enormous Psytrance Festival. I think there are 35,000-ish attendees. And I think (laughs) there's like only 11% of people there are not on drugs, approximately, something like that. So, you know, many people are going there for the first time, having these incredible experiences, taking, you know, tons of drugs that they don't know anything about, really. Um, And our goal, really, working with Cosmicare... Is to mitigate any sort of um, harm and really make sure that people have a place to work through difficult experiences. So we like to make the we like to discern between you know a bad trip and a difficult trip because a bad journey implies you know book closed that's it this is terrible I had I derive no value from this Mm -hmm. whereas a difficult experience when shared with people who are caring who are helping you weed things out who are helping you to sort of translate your visions and your experiences and kind of apply it to the greater a picture of your life, or even somebody to just sit with you. You know, I worked as a sitter at these festivals, so it's really somebody who's. I mean, it, it's a it's a pretty varied job actually. But basically, you know, you're not expected to psychoanalyze anybody. It's just to have somebody to be present with you during mm. these difficult times. Um, and I found that work to be some of the most rewarding um experiences of my life yeah because it, it, you know myself i'm i'm quite a psycho not myself and i've had some of the you know darker journeys of the night um and um just you know, to to build empathy in these experiences and know that hey, I've been there before. Let's work through this, and I and I and I did get better from it. Actually, um, is extremely helpful. Um, and then my work at the temple. So I work at a at a retreat center in the Peruvian Amazon called the Temple mm-hmm. of the Way of Light, um, abbreviated as the Temple. <laughs> um, and it's an ayahuasca retreat center, and we work with with Shipibo healers, um, and yeah we see around eight hundred guests a cool. year, so it's it's quite a lot um, and yeah, and we have people going through very you know intensive experiences and and part the keystone of the work that we do, and I think what's so special about coming to the jungle is really people's commitment to integration. you know mm. they're not going in for a weekend and then going to work the next day, which I'll note is a privilege by the way, you know, to be able to fly to the Amazon. I acknowledge that, and I also Recommended if you can or if, if you know if anybody is kind of making ceremonies just to have space to really integrate is is crucial um and so a lot of the the work that we talk about at the temple actually has to do with integrity so um we've recently been doing these retreats with a man named Richard Condon and um and Richard is a master of ontological inquiry and, and, and we do these workshops together with ayahuasca um, you know talking about integrity so what does it mean to be a person of your word? you Know and it seems very fundamental and very basic, but when you start to work with psychedelics and you start to work with visionary plants, let's say, we start to get these downloads, right? I need to do this, I'm gonna start this business, I'm gonna to apologize to my mom, I'm gonna blah blah blah. We have these whole lists of million and one things we need to do, and very often, because we don't have integrity really, we just don't do them, hence the sort of archetype of the you know <laughs> loser hippie who doesn't. Uh, you know, make anything happen, right? It's because we haven't been trained to be people of our words. Mm. Um, and so that's a lot of the work that we do these days. And we've had really amazing results with it, you know, really asking how are we going to apply these lessons to our lives when we come out? How are we going to, you know, start that business? How are we going to heal that relationship? Um, so, you know, as the founder of the temple, Matthew says, there is no integration without integrity, um, and I really like that. I've, I find that 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 component is not really spoken about in the integrity. I'm uh, sorry, in the in the integration mm-hmm. side of things. Um, but yeah, it's extremely important. And I mean, we also see, in you know, in the United States, and even even abroad, actually, in London, there's a great psychedelic society. Um, these sort of peer-to-peer facilitated groups that are like you know attempting to create culture within and places for people to talk about their experiences and it's an experiment but I find that many people feel very comforted knowing that you know there are a couple of others out there who are um you know ready to just hold you in in your in your in your process of realizing your dreams
0: (laughs) So let's dig into that a little bit, because I know it can be it can be quite tricky when you come out of a context in which you're supported and you're facilitated to then um, stay in connection with things that you've experienced, that you've learned, the insights that you've um, encountered. What are maybe one or two of the practices or tools that you found to be helpful in cultivating the sense of integrity to enable people to really enact the visions that they have um that they get given or they experience in these psychedelic experiences these healing experiences
1: mm, that's great so these are actually not They're very practical you know they're very practical like if you if you have um uh, an ambition or a vision um you know writing it down
0: mm-hmm.
1: and creating uh actionables right so what is the first step to doing this? And not saying, launch da-da-da, but really, write <laughs> email so-and-so on by this date, you know, and it's funny because when people are asked to put the pen to the paper and do that, people get really anxious and nervous and suddenly they have 101 excuses why they can't do this or what. And it's amazing just to watch the monkey in the cage kind of asking to get out and be free. And um, so that's one of the exercises that, you know, we've been experimenting with. And I found that personally, tremendously useful and and simple. Um, And I would also say peer-to-peer accountability, you know, mm. having friends and saying, hey, this is, this is my goal. Can you keep me accountable for this? And can you check in with me about this? Mm. Um, and really saying, I promise to do this and understanding that your word is on the line if you don't. And we are only as much as our word, really, you know. So and it's it's kind of harsh, it's saying, you know, if you fail It's already practical. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's harsh. It's like if you fail, if you don't do this, you've broken your word and you're and, and it's been tarnished almost like you know, there's kind of points taken off. And that's just one way to look at it. And I think some people would disagree with it, some people would find it too rigid, but I think in terms of just building more um, efficiency and integrity in the work that we do, which is so important ultimately, because I find that you know if we're not Actually, doing this psychedelic work to contribute to something greater than I fear that it's just another, especially with ayahuasca and these plant medicines, just another kind of extractivist pastime. That's mm. you know a, a pleasure that's not going to contribute to the real transformation that we need here on Earth. And and that's my view, and that's the v- view of my colleagues. You know, mm. um, and that and that is a bit of my fear. You know, I, I GQ recently published an article about microdosing. I mean who isn't these days but something like you know your boss is gonna love this new drug habit or something and it's all about microdosing and it's just like such an exceedingly mediocre uh, use for these substances really you know and and it it i understand that in some cases it's useful but for that to be really the angle that's highlighted by mainstream media is is predictable and a bit disappointing but i really hope that you know we the people really do start to do the very tough work, um, with maybe, yeah, taking threshold doses Mm. (laughs) under the guidance, you know, of people who know what they're doing. I mean, Mm. I've seen people go off the deep end and, um, it's not pretty. And that's where, you know, respecting and working in reciprocity with, I believe, indigenous people who have been working for hundreds, if not thousands of years with these plants comes in.
0: Mm. I wonder if you've noticed any, any themes, um, in terms of the insights that people coming to the temple come away with, is there a set of themes that you see cropping up again and again?
1: Um, um definitely for sure. You know, the, as I mentioned earlier, these, these, I call them like nebulous diseases, mm. right? So depression, anxiety, these are the major ones that we see people coming in with, um, and 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 very often we find people just reviewing their relationships actually so not their career not their ambitions not the thing out there but actually the things right here you know the things that are very close to the heart and sometimes that takes digging in and remembering you know unsavory moments mm. or kind of <laughs> difficult times um and yeah really making peace with people that we're not at peace with it's very we're and we're very and at the, which is kind of cute in a way it just makes us it reminds me we're such little mammals you know we really just care about our community and our people and even though we pretend we don't or even though we forget we do um people around us and our loved ones are very important to us. And those networks of connection are extremely important. So, yeah, usually it's, it's almost challenging to ask people to not be on their phones for a few weeks because, oh, wow. you know, they come and they're like, I need to text my mom. I need to call her. Da, da, da. You know, I haven't spoken to my sister in 10 years and we need to make peace. These sorts of things happen very often, um, which is which is very beautiful, which is very inspiring. So, yeah, just mm-hmm. being better people. Basically,
0: yeah, <laughs> and so, from that foundational sort of social aspect um, what would you say are some of the more economic and political and cultural and environmental impacts that that the use of ayahuasca the working with ayahuasca is having on society so both the societies of origin so you mentioned the shipibo people working to facilitate these transformation experiences mostly for western people coming in and then the cultures beyond that so the western cultures to which a lot of these um, attendees return what what are some of the biggest impacts that ayahuasca is having
1: it's a great great question that's like the question i suppose (laughs) um (laughs) Well, let's see. Let's, let's, let's start from the south and move north. So um, in the Amazon basin, we have two plants that are part of the ayahuasca preparation. So there's Banisteriopsis copy, which is um, a woody vine, and Chacruna typically it's these two plants that are combined together. So the the question that, you know, the plant of concern here is Benisteriopsis copy, which is this woody liana that takes anywhere from five to 10 years to grow to maturity, Mm -hmm. to harvesting maturity. So, you know, predictably with the increased, Demand, you know, local consumption and for export of ayahuasca, we find wild ayahuasca populations diminishing rapidly. Mm. Um, we see ayahuasca plantations coming up, which actually isn't oh, such well. a dismal sight, actually, because ayahuasca again, it's a vine, so it likes to grow on other plants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the future, it's kind of it's kind of a it's a blessing in this sense. I actually see it as a as a wonderful potential in the future. Farming ayahuasca can actually look like farming fruit trees and farming, you know, useful hardwoods. So you can really integrate it into a very biodiverse plot. But in any case, um, I myself have met with several people, healers, indigenous elders, just, you know, people who make money from ayahuasca in the region of Peru, in Iquitos. Um that, you know, say, yeah, they need to go farther and farther out into the forest and they're paying higher and higher prices for Mm. ayahuasca. So that's, you know, A. Um, And there are not, I would say, um, equal efforts to uh, replant ayahuasca at the rate that it's being extracted. Mm. So that is unfortunate and needs to be addressed and just spoken about more broadly. So um, Carlos Alvarez Suarez is doing amazing work reporting on that. Um, and, you know, locally now, just from a perspective of commerce and tourism, you have thousands, unknown thousands at this point of people flying into the Amazon basin for, I'd say minimum two weeks, a week, two weeks, um, and they're drinking ayahuasca and they're, you know, they're stimulating the local economy. They're going to cafes, they're paying the airline, they're doing all of the things along the way. Mm. Um, and... What's most interesting here is that they're paying indigenous communities for their traditional practices, right? So some people articulate this as a form of actual spiritual extractivism, they call it. So you're paying and you're extracting the knowledge and bringing it back and going to Burning Man and holding ceremonies for, you know, $10,000 or whatever. Um, But I would actually argue that it's a bit more nuanced than that, because what we see in the Amazon is communities actually getting an opportunity to... Um, make a livelihood from a, from a, an activity that isn't destroying their land, mm. um, which is major. I mean, you know the con- and that's
0: perversing their cultural traditions also.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that's that's really the thing to think about here is that we see you know in the Amazon. Perhaps obviously, you know, you have ext- You 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 can work in an oil company. Maybe you can work for timber. Um, generally, you know, the riches are the land, and it requires kind of destroying the land in order to m- to make a living. So, um, it is quite interesting to see, yeah, communities and their work being celebrated through these networks of commerce. Um, and I think you know that there can be and there will be more um, sophisticated evolutions of exchanging value in this region. What I mean is, you know, we're not just paying for ayahuasca, which seems very kind of crass or blunt. Mm. Or it, there, there's there's something fundamentally uncomfortable with the idea of paying for something sacred, mm. right? This is like an age-old conundrum that people have worked with. Um, but you know, the the temple has a non profit organization that we work with very closely called the Chaikuni Institute. Um, and all of the temples profits go towards Chaikuni and Chaikuni is working on reforestation, mm. intercultural education programming, um, sustainable ayahuasca harvesting and supporting, you know, environmental struggles and in- environmental justice work. So Amazing. I think that these kind of networks of reciprocity, yeah, it is. It really is. And and to me that's like a that's the potential that this this stuff has, you know, not just cold hard cash, but actually um working together really and in in new ways that the world has never seen before truly you know we've never seen it before in the jungle
0: yeah yeah and it's inspiring to think that there's a a way in which people can align economic interests with environmental interests and our desire for growth because i think this is another thing which is so fundamental is it's very easy to say well um it's, it's fine and good to want to grow spiritually or uh, psychologically or emotionally or however it is, but you're not allowed to do X or Y because it's going to pollute the environment. It's such a complex system. Um, and so I think finding ways to uh, make all of those things work together where possible is, is probably the best way forward. I'm conscious that we're coming to time on this and I'm, I'm curious to ask uh, what one insight or advice you might give to people listening in terms of how to maybe relate more deeply with themselves and get themselves out of the the more nebulous issues that you mentioned before so if people are feeling depressed or they're feeling anxious or they're feeling disconnected what might you suggest for them as a starting point
1: Mm let's see i mean i immediately go to the plants (laughs) immediately (laughs) that's okay Um, yeah, I I was like, let's see if I'll do something off brand here, but no, I couldn't do it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, some, something that I quite often do is go to botanical garden, actually. I mean, this is, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about this, but go to botanical gardens and, um. And, 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 and just relate to the plants, you know, like learn about them, read those little... I Spend an afternoon alone at the botanical garden and read the little plaques and all of the work that the botanists have put in there and learn a little bit about our evolution with plants and, and purchase a plant, care for a plant. Um, and I, if you can, you know, I love, I love herbalist, herbalism walks herbalist walks mm. um, and just seeing, you know, going for a walk in the woods with some sort of a witch and <laughs> seeing the different stories and tales that people have about the plants. For me, it's just like, you know, the plants are kind of my buoy or my, my life saver because I, it, they just helped me realize that, the, that this whole amazing experiment of life is so much more complex and so much greater than our tiny little experience of it um mm-hmm. and And just to be able to relate to them in some way, you know i 'm not hugging them i 'm not licking them it 's nothing crazy you know it 's just from an evolutionary perspective, revering these fellow beings on our journey through evolution and and seeing how they're doing and and understanding wow human h- human experience is very strange and um and putting things into perspective that way, and again it's really all about building perspective for me any of this depression any of this anxiety it all happens when we're too concerned with ourselves really and too concerned about our own stories um with the exception of course of being anxious about ecological devastation which is a different flavor Um, but even Mm. then you know just shifting shifting it into perspective and saying look we're all experimenting and i don't believe that there's anything wrong with humans you know, I don't think so. I think that theres it's just a much bigger picture and we're yet to see what that picture and that story is looking like.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahigh.com forward slash Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag HivePodcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.